You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, let's turn again to the first letter of the Apostle Peter. And if you're using the church Bible, the passage is, I think, on page 1219, 1 Peter chapter 3. And this evening, we're looking at verses 18 uh, to the end of verse 22 that Martin Luther describes in his study of 1 Peter as the most obscure verses in the whole of the Bible. And uh, Luther was not one to mince his words. He said he didn't really understand what they were about. Well, it will help us to understand what they're about, I think, if we read in from verse 13. Remember the situation, uh, this, uh, the early decades of the Christian faith. In many ways, the Christian faith was shielded as, as under an umbrella by its Jewish origins. And so, in, in uh, the Roman Empire, it was what was known as a religio, religion, licita, illicit, or legitimate religion, because, of course, um, as often happens today, uh, people did not make great distinctions. These people believed in Jehovah. They had Old Testament roots. They kind of worshipped and they sang. And uh, for a number of uh, years, the the Christian faith was freed from uh, the kind of totalitarian pressures of the Roman government. Um, In actual fact, the chief persecutors, as the book of the Acts of the Apostles tells us, were Jews, not Romans. Uh, By and large, the apostles were sheltered by the Roman Empire. That didn't mean they didn't suffer persecution. Uh, Whether we're a Christian country or not, um, this country is a Christian tradition. That doesn't mean that you are shielded from persecution as a Christian. The day would come when that persecution would become official, as it has in the past, in our own uh, lifetime, many countries in the world, uh, many Christians begin to wonder whether the same thing will be true here, not physically, apparently, but in other ways that uh, there is a prohibition on practicing the Christian faith. But when Peter is writing, persecution is unofficial but very real. It's not less painful because it's less official, sometimes more painful. And so he writes, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ 
may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins. Actually, better, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Many years ago, I was invited to preach in a church where they were having a series of messages on characters from the Old Testament, and they asked if I would preach on the Noah narrative in the early chapters of Genesis. Also in this church, they traditionally opened their service by reading verses of Scripture appropriate to the theme of the service. And so, they asked me what verses would be appropriate, and I suggested at the beginning of the service, they read these verses that we have just read, because they are a great New Testament teaching on Noah. I went into the robing room as it was. There were other ministers present who were going to take different parts of the service, and the one who was going to open the service said, what are we going to do about these verses at the beginning of the order of service? I'd been around the block. I knew what he was thinking. So, I said to him, what do you mean? He said, well, it says baptism now saves you. I looked at the order of service, and sure enough, it said baptism now saves you. I said, that's right. He said, but we spend so much time in our congregation telling people baptism doesn't save you. And I resorted at that point to the authority of Scripture. And I said, well, it's your word or it's the Apostle Peter's word, but it's obviously not going to be both. So we read these verses at the beginning of the service. But many evangelical Christians would choke on them. The words baptism now saves you might make them think there must be something wrong with the NIV translation. Let's try the ESV and find the same thing. Oh, let's go back to the authorized version. Let's go back to the Tyndale version, who incidentally justifies calling a church the lucky church because its translation of Genesis 39.2 is Joseph was a lucky fellow. <laughs> but what are we to make of this? And then, as though that were not challenging enough as we develop a sympathy with what Luther thought of these verses, 
What is, what is all this about the preaching to the spirits in prison in the days of Noah and the flood and Jesus doing it? Well, what do we do when we come across difficult passages of Scripture? Well, we have a native tendency to ask the question, how can we solve the problems? That's usually the wrong way around. Our confession of faith, Westminster Confession, tells us in its opening chapter, the first thing that we do is ask ourselves, does the rest of Scripture shed light on this passage? And it does just a little. The second thing we do, I think, is probably this. We try to read the passage in terms of the flow of the thinking, the inner logic of the teaching. Is there a, is there a pattern here that would help us understand exactly what the author is saying? In other words, we stand back from the difficulties and we look at the overall message of the passage. And then the third thing we do, of course, is ask the question, what is this passage supposed to do to me? And it's fairly clear, a little like studying the book of Revelation, that Peter is not getting us to sit in our armchairs to solve biblical crossword puzzles, he is wanting to encourage Christians who are facing suffering and persecution. So, a right understanding of this passage by necessity would have the effect on me of encouraging me in the face of persecution, giving me courage to stand up and be counted for the sake of Jesus Christ. So, let's creep up very gently and slowly on this passage, and at least this evening, I want us to try and do three things. I want us to look, first of all, at the heart of the passage. Then, when we've done that, I think it's safe for us, secondly, to look at the difficulties of the passage, and then, once we've done that, to look at the burden of the passage, what it says to us, what it's here to do to us. Well, first of all, the heart of the passage. Our problem with passages like this is often we can't see the wood for looking at particular trees. And so, we need to step back a little and look at the flow of this passage. What's this passage in general terms saying? Well, there is a flow to this passage. It's actually fairly obvious. It's a flow from the suffering of the Lord Jesus to the exaltation, the ascension, the heavenly reign, and the cosmic authority of the Lord Jesus. And it takes us, it seems, through His suffering and His resurrection and His ascension and His glorification and authority. And when we see that, you notice how Peter puts it. He speaks about Christ suffering for us, 
once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God, being put to death but made alive by the Spirit, that is to say, made alive in the resurrection by the Spirit. And then this unusual passage about him preaching, but it leads to him speaking about the way in which baptism saves us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, who has gone into heaven, is at God's right hand, and angels, authorities, and powers are in submission to him. And when we have seen that, his suffering and death, his burial and resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and his present reign over all authority and power, it may dawn on us as we know our New Testaments quite well that that is very reminiscent of a whole series of passages in the New Testament, passages that seem to echo a very early Christian statement of faith. What do we believe? That echo, for example, the opening words of Paul's great letter to the Romans, that Christ was put to death as to the flesh and raised up by the power of the Spirit, or the little creed that appears in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 following. What's the What's the heart of the Christian faith? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried. The third day He was raised again, and then Paul goes on to speak about His ascended glory, His present reign, His coming majesty. The same thing in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, that many scholars have thought is a form of an early Christian hymn that expresses the basics of the Christian faith. Remember last Sunday night, I uh, was myself reminded, and some of you remembered a chorus taught at Sunday school or Bible class, living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. When you've learned that chorus, you know the heart of the gospel. And Paul speaks of it in 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Great is the mystery of godliness the manifestation of Christ in the flesh, the crucifixion of Christ in Calvary, the resurrection of Christ from the garden tomb, and His ascension in majesty and glory, and His coming again for His people. And it echoes throughout the New Testament. And this is the, this is the heart, this is the basic structure of what Peter is teaching us. In other words, for all the obscurity that Martin Luther saw in these verses, you might have been able to sit down beside him and say, Brother Martin, just step back a little and tell me what you see. You know that uh, optical illusion of the beautiful girl and the ugly old hag. I have met people who have told me they have never seen a beautiful woman. All they can see 
is an ugly hag. But if you look at a particular point in that optical illusion, there's one particular point you can look at that almost as though it's a key will turn that ugly old hag into a beautiful woman. And in a sense, that's what we need to do with obscure passages in the Bible. They're not there in order to confuse us. I mean, this man, he may have been a successful uh, businessman as a fisherman. No subsidy from the Galilee economic community. But people thought of him as an ignorant and unlearned man. He's a preacher of the gospel. He wants people to understand the gospel. He finds some things Paul writes difficult to understand, he says. Not because he wants to be obscure, either Paul or Peter, but because there are some unfathomable and glorious mysteries about the gospel. But he knows that those unfathomable mysteries fit into the revealed truth of the gospel. And it's almost as though we need to say to ourselves, now just sit back for a moment, and especially if you're if especially a kind of obsessive compulsive type, which apparently regeneration does not deliver people from. And sit back and say, let me first of all see the grand scheme of things and glory in that. You see, in a way, that's a real litmus test to me as a reader of Scripture. Because if I'm not able to glory in that because I can't understand the little details, then I'm really saying to the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of these words, How dare you not make it clearer than this to large and important me? I want to glory in understanding the obscurities. And the great thing is to sit back from the obscurities and to understand the plain things and the central things because it's in the light of them that we will be able to understand the things that seem to us to be obscure. So, what's the heart of the passage here? It's not who the spirits in prison were. It's not what was Noah doing. It's not how does baptism save us. It's how does Jesus save us. That's the heart of the message. He's telling us that we have a great Savior who has suffered for the sins of those who suffer for His sake, who has been raised from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit, who has ascended to the position of honor at the right hand of the Father, and who reigns supreme over all powers in the universe. We have a majestic and a glorious Savior who has done everything we need for the situation in which we find ourselves. Now, why is that important? You know, I think it's very significant Peter is writing to 
youngish Christians. He's very far from them. Uh, probably they've uh, not had an apostolic visit of late. And you know, for, for new and young Christians, um, becoming a Christian can be an overwhelming experience. Emotionally, it can be overwhelming. Psychologically overwhelming. The experience itself. And so, when someone says to us, well, tell us about your Christian faith, what we tend to do is to describe a great experience we've had. Peter sure had a great experience. Some of it was exceedingly painful, but he had a great experience. But I think he well understood that no matter how great our experience, that can be a very frail and fragile thing when we're facing persecution. we could be overwhelmed with a sense of joy and relief. And when someone asks about the Christian faith, we can say, I had this amazing experience of joy and relief. But remember what Jesus taught in the parable of the sower and the soils? That it's one thing to have a great experience of joy. But he says, sometimes when persecution comes, that shrivels up because the root of the matter, the root of the matter, we have tended to ignore. And so, Peter is saying to these Christians, as they face already, certainly in the future, will face persecution, make sure that your eyes are in the right place. Make sure that what is growing in your life is not growing out of a fragile experience, no matter how stunning it may have been. Make sure you're anchored to Jesus Christ. And so, for example, when someone says, what is the gospel? The answer is not, I had a great experience that turned my life around. The experience I had that turned my life around will not be able to save my pet budgie, never mind my neighbor. What can save my neighbor is the gospel that Christ suffered for our sins to bring us to God, that He was buried, that He was raised again in the power of the Spirit, that He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and that He reigns over everything, is absolutely sovereign over everything. That's what keeps me stable. And this is what we discover when we think, first of all, about the heart of this passage. Well, with that in place, secondly, what about the difficulties in the passage? Well, there are two of them. The first is what Peter says about Christ by the Spirit, going, this is verse 19, and preaching to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Well, why mention Noah? Maybe the answer is Peter loved the Noah story. 
We used to have flashcards with our children. You know, all the Bible stories. What story do you want to hear tonight? One of our children who will remain nameless. I will tell you, it was one of the male children who will remain nameless. Noah. There were sometimes I could have seen those flashcards in the trash can. <laughs> what the story of Noah. Was Peter like that? Loved the story of Noah. He was a fisherman after all. You know, maybe that's the case. Actually, the likelihood, I think, is that the, the Noah story was known outside of the Christian church. It was known outside of the Jewish faith. Of course, it was known outside of the Jewish faith because it wasn't a Jewish story. It was a pre-Abraham story. It was a world story. So much so, this is really an astonishing thing. During the, the period of the Roman Empire, I think there were five different coins minted by the Roman Empire that had Caesar on one side, and guess who on the other? Noah. And of course, this was the part of the world where it was widely believed that Noah's ark had come to rest. So even pagans knew the Noah story. And this may well be the reason why Peter brings in Noah here and the days of Noah. I mean, if you knew nothing about the Old Testament, you knew about Noah, you knew about the flood, you knew about the ark. And you knew that Noah had been a preacher of righteousness, as Peter calls him uh, in his second letter. I think that's probably, it's a kind of bridge. It's, it, it was a gospel bridge into the society. But what's he saying about Noah? Well, there are several different views of this passage. Let me just mention briefly the two that I think are the most likely ones. First of all, that what Peter is saying is that the Spirit of God by whom Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, the Spirit of Christ, was the Spirit who even before Christ was incarnate, that same Spirit was on Noah in his ministry and in his preaching to his contemporaries, who, of course, rejected the word of Noah and received only judgment. And Noah preached to them, but in a sense, we can say Christ preached to them. Just as Paul says to the Ephesians, after Christ had made reconciliation for your sins, he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off. Now, Jesus didn't visit Ephesus, did he? Any more than his feet tread on England's pleasant lands. But a sense he did visit Ephesus, he did visit England. When? When the gospel was brought, when Christ, through his servants and the power of the Spirit, preached the gospel. And it may be that that is what uh, the Apostle Peter means. The other view, and I have to say it's the view I personally subscribe to, although I wouldn't want you to be prejudiced by that fact, is this. 
that when we stand back from this passage, there is such a chronological sequence that we should interpret this preaching of Christ in the power of the Spirit within that chronological context. He suffered and died. He was buried and resurrected. And He made proclamation. He preached to the spirits who were in prison, who were rebellious in the days of Noah. Why, why them in particular? Because in a sense they are the worst illustration, or in another sense the clearest illustration of rebellion against God. There is such rebellion against God in the days of Noah that God has had it up to here with the world He lovingly created, and He virtually destroys the whole of it, saving only eight people in order to begin again on the other side of the flood. And in that sense, what Peter is saying, mysterious though it may be to us, is that as Christ's ascension began, as the beginnings of His glorification took place, His humiliation in His suffering and in His burial, and then the beginnings of His glorification and His exaltation in His resurrection leading to His session at the right hand of the Father, He engaged in this mysterious but altogether appropriate action of going and pronouncing not salvation for the lost, but judgment to these spirits who were in prison. Just as the Bible teaches us there is a, there is a kind of interim, what's called an intermediate state for Christians who die, we go immediately to be with Christ, but then later on comes the resurrection. How do you understand that? It's beyond our understanding. None of us has experienced it. So, in the same way as there are the spirits of just men made perfect, as Hebrews says, in the presence of the Lord Jesus tonight, there are these spirits who are in prison. And one of the first acts of the ascending Lord Jesus, the exalting of the Lord Jesus, is that just as He came to His dear disciples and proclaimed peace to them, shalom, He went to those who were in prison and proclaimed His final judgment upon them and showed His sovereignty over them. Now, you can see where Peter's leading, can't you? when this gets a hold of you, that if these deeply wicked spirits in the days of Noah, if these deeply wicked spirits in the days of Noah have the sovereign judgment of the Lord Jesus pronounced over them, what have we to fear? And you need to think about that. There were monsters in the land in those days, and uh, some of us feel perhaps where you work or where you live and sometimes in your family and certainly in the middle of the night when you wake up and think about it. There are monsters who may be opposed to your Christian faith. 
Christ pronounces his sovereign judgment over them. They, they, they would not have his message. They still would not have his message. You find it one of the most amazing things in the world how there is this assumption still in, in our non-Christian society that uh, when you die, you go to heaven. That is to say, you're with God. You're with Jesus. You become an angel. I mean, isn't that amazing for people who have no interest in God or Jesus, who sometimes go furious when the name is mentioned, who have no interest in worshiping Him, and who feel because of their free will, of course they can decide what's going to change their minds then. Nothing at all. Time is that significant. The decisions we make here are that significant. And Peter is bringing comfort, isn't he? And it's interesting, whichever interpretation of this passage you have, and I'm limiting it only to two for the sake of our sanity this evening, um, the message is really the same. Don't let the fact that this is quite difficult to understand obscure the fact that whichever interpretation you adopt conveys the same message that Jesus Christ is not only Lord of the church and Lord of the glory of heaven, He is the Lord of all and the judge of all, and therefore his people are safe. Well, okay, but what about this business of baptism saving us? I mean, of these, of these words, I mean, maybe if you were a Roman Catholic or very high Anglican, smells and bells, and believed that there was, there was some kind of amazing, mysterious authority given to the priest when he was ordained, that left, and, and this is the teaching, left a, a kind of subliminal impression of power on him that when he administers baptism, something happens to you, and grace is infused into you. Is that what he says? Well, certainly not what the New Testament teaches, is it? So, it's unlikely that's what he says. Why does he put it this way? My guess is 95% of us, if we were there when First Peter was being written, and he tells us it was with the help of Silas. It's a kind of unusual way of describing it. Looks as though Silas was not just the amanuensis taking the words down, but Something was going on between them. I wrote this with the help of Silas. If I was Silas, his name begins with the same two letters. Sigma, iota. Hmm? Peter, don't put it that way. But the Holy Spirit says, Silas, quiet. Put it that way. Baptism now saves you. 
Well, we say, thank God, there's that little qualification not by removing dirt from the body. Well, you never believed that, but you would never say baptism saves you. What's he saying? I think part of our problem here is we are, we've created our own language about how you become a Christian. And because it's normal for us, we think it's always been normal. Let me, let me try and help this way. Some of us in the room probably, if, we're, if I said, how did you become a Christian? You might say, Do you know, I've never, I have no memory of any point in my life when I didn't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. But then if I asked some of you, you, you might say, now that you're in the free church, you might be slightly embarrassed about saying it. Well, I, I got saved uh, when I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade, or I, w- I was at a camp, and when they said, raise your hand, if you want to be saved, raise your hand, and that's when I was saved. And it never crosses our minds, actually, that kind of language, it never crosses our mind that we are actually describing a spiritual transaction in terms of a physical action. We, the words just come we, we Am I talking gobbledygook? You know, this is our experience, isn't it? When, when will you say, I, I got saved when I, when I went forward? Well, going forward doesn't save you. And that's not what I mean. What do you mean? Well, if you really want the theologically correct version, I was saved by Jesus Christ dying for me on the cross. My eyes were opened to that by the Holy Spirit. And as that was taking place, I was invited to go forward or raise my hand or pray a prayer. It wasn't, it wasn't going forward that saved me. It was Christ who saved me. The risen Christ saved me. Now, put yourself in Peter's position. Um, in the year 31, 32 AD, uh, somewhere in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, and, and Peter's out for an early, he can't sleep, he's out for an early morning walk. And, and there, there's somebody walking with his dog. You know, how are you? He's read the old Operation Mobilization Manual for Evangelism. Did you know that dog is God spelt backwards? <laughs> Remember that? And they fall into a conversation and he, he says, are you saved? And he, the man blinks. He says, well, yes, I'm saved. Don't you remember? And he says, do I know you? And the man says, well, I was saved when I came forward for baptism on the day of Pentecost. You baptized me. I got saved when I was baptized. He says, well, 3,000, you don't expect me to remember all the names of the congregation, do you? But you see how that would happen? In a world where getting saved has been associated by 
going forward or raising your hand or praying the prayer, the two things come together. But actually, in the New Testament, you see in many ways, these are kind of poor substitutes for baptism. In the New Testament, baptism and faith were like the inside and the outside of the same reality. And so, Peter is not saying it was the action of baptism that saves us, but we were saved by baptism. I was saved by going forward for baptism through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is to say, my faith, my baptism were the inside and the outside of my taking hold of the crucified, buried, and risen and alive Lord Jesus, and coming to Him. And as I came to Him, the outside of that was the putting off of the old and the putting on of the new, of experiencing this baptism. And so, he's helping us to understand something really rather marvelous, that Jesus Christ, who is the center of this passage, is the one who is the judge of all the earth and the one through whom we are saved as we experience baptism, which is, he says, to us like the flood and the ark was to Noah and his family. What's the connection? The waters of divine judgment fell. Noah and his family, Mrs. Noah, Master Noah, Master Noah, Master Noah, and Mrs. Noah Jr., Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Mrs. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Why were they saved? Did the water not come down upon them? Ah, but they were protected by the ark in the midst of the flood. And Peter is saying, that's what's happened to us. That's what our baptism means. David was saying the other Sunday, Psalm 69, which is about a great water ordeal, is the psalm most frequently quoted in all of the New Testament in relationship to the cross of Jesus Christ. When the floodwaters of divine wrath fell upon him, and Peter is saying, how do we escape? Because we are in him. That's what our baptism means. Our baptism means we're united to Jesus Christ. It's the outside of the inner transaction in which we hid in the ark of the covenant our Lord Jesus Christ, and the judgment fell upon Him, and we were saved through His resurrection. He was put to death for our trespasses, and He was raised, says Paul, the end of Romans 4, for our justification. What then is the burden of this passage? 
if the heart of it is the heart of the gospel, if these difficulties actually enhance our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, then what's the burden of this passage? Well, notice the three things that are said. First of all, it's very interesting that that Peter actually doesn't use the word die here about Jesus. He uses the word suffer. He did die, but he uses the word suffer because he wants to make the connection. You are suffering Christians, but Christ suffered for you to bring you to God. Doesn't that encourage you to face the suffering, the miniature suffering that you experience? Isn't that the, isn't that the, the strengthening thought as you experience persecution? I'm hiding in Jesus. And he tasted the depths of persecution. This is a small thing for me to experience for such a great Savior. But then there's also this in this passage. Christ is the one into whom I've been baptized. It's interesting, isn't it? I can't delay on this, but the New Testament uses baptism in a way we Christians today rarely use it. We use baptism to describe something either that happened to us or that we did in the past, not as something that describes who we are in the present. Somebody who's been baptized into Christ. Actually, a New Testament Christian would would scarcely have recognized what it means to be a Christian who doesn't constantly think about what their baptism says about them. Whereas many of us tend to think about our baptisms as saying something about ourselves, what we did. But you see, Peter is teaching us that if we are baptized Christians, that means we're no longer our own, we're Christ's, whatever. Now, you see, that changes everything, doesn't it? Actually, Martin Luther, for all his difficulties with this passage, wherever he was facing difficulties, wherever he was discouraged, wherever he was depressed, he would go out into his backyard and he would say to himself, Baptizatus sum. I'm a baptized man. But we would tend to say to him, forget about that. It's where you are today that really matters. And Luther would say, that's where I am today. So Peter's teaching us something about the ongoing importance of realizing that if you've been baptized, you are no longer your own. You belong to Jesus Christ. And the third thing he's teaching us is that Christ reigns as sovereignty and in sovereignty over angels, authorities, and powers, and they're all in submission to him. It's not just that he reigns over them. Her majesty reigns over us, sometimes happy and occasionally glorious, long to reign over us, but she doesn't in that sense. 
command our submission. That's why we've got anti-royalists, don't we? She may reign in name, but she doesn't reign in reality. What Peter has said, this is so important for us to grasp, no matter how hellish these powers and authorities may be, they are in utter submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and can do nothing, absolutely nothing, without His permission. And nothing that escapes His purpose. And so, the message is this. You come, persecutor. You come, person who makes me suffer. You come, person who demeans my faith. You seek to intimidate me and to destroy all that is precious to me. But he who laughs last, laughs longest. You can do absolutely nothing without the sovereign permission of my Savior. And indeed, everything you do will be part of His purpose to make me like Himself and to take me to glory. So do your worst. I have nothing to fear. You you foolish, blind person are simply an instrument in the hands of the purposes of my heavenly Father. And He will employ, yes, He will employ even your sinful persecution of Christians to make us shine like stars in the firmament. Oh, my dear friends, we're so small, and we seem to be getting smaller in the world. And the powers and authorities seem to be getting larger, and sometimes seem to some of us more ferocious and totalitarian in their intent on destroying the church of Jesus Christ and demeaning the Christian faith and the gospel and Christian believers if they get in the way. And yet, at the end of the day, everything they do to us. That's all part of our Heavenly Father's purpose, to make us like His Son. And however obscure this passage may be, that message is clear. You watched the Trooping of the Color yesterday? I missed it. But I love to think of those great, don't the British do it well, incidentally? Well, don't the British do it really well? You know, these, these magnificently dressed soldiers, they're, they're marching down, and there is the sovereign, and they're marching in step. And it, it's, it's stunning in its, in its precision and in its organization. And then comes that great moment when the commanding officer just says two words, eyes right! And as one man every man's eyes turn to face the sovereign and acknowledge the sovereign's power and authority. And uh, I don't know who does that. 
I don't know if it's a sergeant major or you need to be a general or something stunningly high to be able to say those words. Peter's my man in this. He's one of 11 apostles left in the church. And he's saying to these beleaguered Christians, eyes right. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, now set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's taking us there. And it's taken too long to explain that. But he's still taking us there in glory. Heavenly Father, fill us with confidence, we pray, at the beginning of this week, that you work everything together for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. Bring this to our mind if we go through difficult situations or encounter difficult people or find our faith maligned or the name of the Lord used in vain and ourselves belittled for what we believe or how we live. Help us to fix our eyes on the throne of the universe where Jesus reigns in majesty and glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's finish by singing um, the great hymn, Be Thou My Vision. O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence my light. Let's stand and sing, and then please remain standing for the benediction. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.